everybody. Good to see you. Um, before I get going here, a couple of quick housekeeping things. First of all, I want to um, explain. This is what we call Holy Week. So that starts today and goes through next Sunday. And um, to, uh, today is uh, Palm Sunday. Um, although I'm not going to be talking about Palm Sunday because I actually talked about it several weeks ago because it's just the way our series worked out. Um, but the thing that I want to give you a heads up on is that <clears throat> Good Friday, this coming Friday, uh, we're going to be here for um, uh, an evening, a worship evening, uh, 7 o'clock, right, Dan? Yes, 7 o'clock, we're going to be here, 7 to 8, uh, child care for 4 and under. So try to make that a priority, because really the idea behind it is so that we can prep our hearts for Resurrection Sunday. Um, because we need to understand what was happening on Friday so that we can really enjoy what happened on Sunday. Does this make sense? Yes. So Friday, Good Friday service, 7 o'clock, right here. Um, love to have you. would be a great place if you wanted to... Um, invite friends and family to join you. Um, if they want to prep their hearts too, that would be great. Uh, it's going to be one of those kind of solemn sorts of things. Um, but frankly, it's a hook to get you to come back on Sunday, okay? So um, Sunday, Resurrection Sunday is, ah, I was trying to explain this to somebody. It's, it, it is our Super Bowl. I mean, this is, this is kind of the big thing, and, and we're real excited about it because God's been doing some really cool stuff around here, and what a time of worship we're going to have. So keep that in mind. So Good Friday, 7 o'clock here, and then Resurrection Sunday. Um, invite your friends and family. I think, I think they're going to enjoy it, and I think that uh, they're going to be able to connect with God, and that's really what we're all about. Okay. So among the disciples... Um, there's three of them that kind of stand out. There's, there's several lists um, within all the Gospels that tell you who the disciples are, but really when we talk about the disciples, most often we talk about who? Peter, James, and John, right? And even of those three, there's two that typically stand out more than one of them, and that's Peter and John, okay? And I, you know, I was kind of speculating about this a little bit. Um, <clears throat> you know, obviously Jesus spent a lot more time with, with the three of them, but Peter and John, I, I think they get a little more press for a number of reasons. Maybe it's because of the books that they have. I mean, you've got First uh, and Second Peter, and then the truth of the matter is, is that if you're reading the Gospel of Mark, there's certain details in the Gospel of Mark that really only somebody who was there, who was present at that particular moment, eyewitness details kind of a thing. It's often associated with Peter because John Mark, the man who wrote it, was actually a good friend of Peter, okay? So they often say Mark is actually Peter's Gospel. So you, you really have those books, plus you have uh, the Gospel of Mark, and, and so, you know, Peter... Peter gets a lot of press, and, and, and Peter just did some stuff, you know? He's just kind of like every man, and I think a lot of us identify with Peter because he's kind of like, you know, those of you who, who used to watch um, uh, ESPN, it was Chris Berman, he's kind of a stumbling, bumbling type of guy, and he, you know, finally makes his way into the end zone, but man, with Peter, sometimes it is not a pretty thing. And we all get that, and I think we all identify with that to a certain degree. So, <clears throat> so Peter, he, he, he gets, gets some press. And I think he's also, it, it's because he is central to the, the first third of the book of Acts. 
Often, um, the, the author, Luke, is following Peter at least through the first third of that, and, and so he, he gets a little more um, notoriety because of it. John is a prolific writer. I mean, John, he's got the Gospel of John. He's got three, well, we call them letters, but they're really kind of like little pamphlets, so to speak, and, and of course, there's the Revelation, right? Um, that weird book at the end that we all try to ignore and... Or the opposite, we try to read too much into it and we start trying to read end times things into to everything that's happening in the world today. And, 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 so, and, and here's the other thing, James, you know, Peter, James, and John, he's not the James that wrote the book of James. So it's not James, the brother of John, that wrote the book of James, it's James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. And yes, there's a quiz on this at the end. It's like a big family tree, trying to get it all, to all sort, sorted out. So... You know, Peter, James, and John, and, and poor James is kind of, you know, in the shadow, and he's most likely the, the older of the, of the two brothers, James and John. And what's interesting to me is that, that Peter is very likely the oldest of all of the disciples. <clears throat> most likely. There's some evidence in the text to suggest this, um, but, you know, he's at least in his mid-20s, um, there's mention in one of the Gospels that he has a mother-in-law, so he's married, and so he's got, uh, um, he's probably a little bit older. Um, I'm I'm guessing probably mid-20s. By contrast, John is very likely the youngest of the disciples. In fact, there's um, some uh, suggest that he could have been as young as 13 years old when he started following Jesus, and this really struck me as funny because it, it just hit me that the junior high youth pastor is probably the closest to Jesus in more ways than one. If you think about it, right? I mean, that's who Jesus was hanging with, was the junior high school boys. And I really, uh, anyway, I always thought there was a special place in God's heart for junior high youth pastors, and now I understand why. So anyway, um, so you've got this interesting contrast. You've got Peter, who's the oldest, John, who's likely the youngest, and I find it really interesting because the youngest writes about the oldest. And we're gonna see that today. And, And what I, the thing that I understood this time around, I don't know how many times I've read through this passage, but the thing that I understood is that John is truthful about Peter, but he's also incredibly respectful. He doesn't throw Peter under the bus at all. He simply reports the things that he remembers, and it's very truthful, and, and it's kind of warts and all, but there is a level of respect here. And hopefully you'll see this as we go along. And so I kind of want to, say to you up front, this is a very rich passage. This has been a rich series as far as I'm concerned. Um, And and I could go on and on about these things, but this this part takes a little bit of setup. And so you need to understand kind of the progression of things before we understand the scene in John 18 that we're going to read today. So earlier, John recounts some of Jesus' more difficult teaching. And he gave difficult teaching. I mean, in, in one case, I think like half the church left, <laughs> half, the, half of his followers left, or maybe more. <clears throat> and John writes this about, about Peter in John chapter six. Jesus gives us hard teaching, and it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Man, that's rough teaching right there. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked 
the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now in the other Gospels, um, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And who was it? It was Peter. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That story is not recorded in John. This one is. But you can see the parallels, right? This is Peter making a declaration of who Jesus actually is. It is his confession. And this is evidence that on some level, at least in part, Peter got Jesus. He, he, he understood a, a little bit about what was happening here. And of course, that's revelation that, that God gave to him. But it's a beautiful thing where he says, look, where, where else are we going to go? I mean, what you're telling us, the things that we've seen, we can't explain this kind of stuff. This is eternal life. And, and if that's the case, then there's only one conclusion that I can draw, that you are this person, this Holy One of God. And as that story develops prior to the death and resurrection, John records this scene. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. We just talked about this a few weeks ago. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Somebody just, uh, I read this recently, calls this the great charter. Because you have the great commission, you have the great commandment, well, you gotta call this something. So this is a great charter. Love one another. New command I give you, love one another. And I really like this because Peter asks him, Lord, where are you going? I mean, talk about an honest question. Jesus is talking about, it's got to seem like riddles to them. I mean, it's easy for you and me because we've read the end of the story, right? We know where this is going. Peter didn't know at that moment, and so he asked the simple question, I don't get it. I've been following you for three years now. Where are you going that I can't follow you? Beautiful question. Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. I'm not sure that was satisfactory to Peter, but that was the answer that he got. And this is what he says. Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you? Can you hear his heart? I will lay, my, lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really? Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Ow! I mean, if I'm Peter, I'm scratching my head at this point, right? Keep thinking about that. And, and believe it or not, this is not harsh treatment. It's truthful. Jesus is just laying out what he sees is going to occur. And I think, I think this is the respect that John is giving. John isn't taking Peter and going, oh, that, that Peter. He's saying, no, 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 you need to understand. This is the progression of things. This is Peter. This is the oldest of us. This is the guy that I look up to. This is what happened to him. It's a truthful retelling of the story. 
And I think that John is actually, as an author, trying to help us work our way through the storyline so that we understand exactly what Peter experienced. It's amazing. It's sown you three times. And hang on, by the way, because it gets worse. (laughs) Yay! As Jesus is arrested, Peter follows him at a distance. He's admitted to a courtyard near where Jesus is being questioned. And here we pick up the story in 18. You know where this one is. The other disciple who is known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. Because he's in trouble. What did Peter say? I am not. Can you imagine what it was like in that moment? You are not sure what's happening. There is chaos. There are soldiers for crying out loud. There are weapons. There are officials from the temple. By the way, the temple is the one thing that was very consistent in your life as a young Jew. It is the authority for life. And now, Your rabbi, this person you've been following, is in trouble with the temple. Now, you've seen Jesus mix it up with these these, um, um, religious leaders before, but this is a whole new ballgame. They are at the house of the high priest's father-in-law. This is a big deal. And the servant girl asks him a very simple question. You're not one of his disciples too, are you? Peter didn't want to get ratted out, neither would you. You wouldn't want that either. <clears throat> I wonder what was going through his mind. <laughs> what would be going through your head? Because, look, this isn't just a work of fiction, this is a real person who is living a real set of experiences. And so when we read what's happening to him, to, to him, then it's perfectly acceptable for you to say, I wonder what I would have done in those set of circumstances. Every disciple would have been under suspicion at that point. And as Jesus continued to be questioned by the high priest's lackeys, meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself So this group of people that he's hanging out with in this courtyard near this home asked him, aren't you one of his disciples, or you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And he denied it, saying, I am not. There we go again. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Peter's a little impetuous. Challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Uh Uh-oh. Now we got an eyewitness. Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. (laughs) The guy who said he'd lay down his life was now distancing himself from the very person that he loved the most. Can you imagine that moment? I mean, really, I mean, think about it. Can you imagine the tension in that moment? You're trying to figure out what's happening and save your own skin at the same time, and I I can't imagine that. 
Maybe we can. Because we've all been caught at one point or another, haven't we? We've all been caught in that moment where it's like, okay, what's really happening here and how do I save myself? Frankly, it's hard not to feel for the guy. I mean, it's not just that Peter denied Jesus, okay? But Peter knew it was coming. That's the other piece of this. Jesus said it a couple of chapters ago, right? I mean, here he is, and I, all of this is coming to pass. And, and, and I, I can imagine the guilt for violating his own conscience. Because he really had that. I mean, here's the one. He says, you know, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And really, he set his life aside for Jesus at the very minimum, right? Because he said, you know, you know, follow me. And Jesus does, or um, Peter does. He sets down his nets and he goes and he follows Jesus. And it's this amazing sort of story. And, and yet, he set his life aside. But now, here he is. When push comes to shove, he's violated his own conscience. And I can't imagine that particular guilt. And he's probably ashamed that Jesus, his rabbi, was right about him. It wasn't just that he denied him and that he knew it was coming, but Jesus was right. And Peter didn't want Jesus to be right about this one. You wouldn't either. That's the reality of what's happening here. And here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that human beings in general tend to beat themselves up for far less too, by the way. What do you do when you realize you've done something hurtful or maybe even made sinful decisions? What do you do with that? What do you do with that, especially if you're a Christian? Usually we avoid it if we can, don't we? (laughs) We don't like discomfort, especially um, emotional. Did you ever notice... When you've um, done something where you've either embarrassed yourself or uh, you may have said something offensive or you've done something to someone else that you're not proud of, all of a sudden, they're the last people on earth you actually want to talk to. Have you ever noticed that? It's like, oh boy, awkward. And I think it's because we're ashamed of our own behavior and we're aware of that awkwardness and we want to avoid it. And now when I'm talking about this idea of being ashamed, I'm not talking about toxic shame. Okay, remember, guilt is having remorse for something that you've done. Shame is remorse for who you are. It's an identity issue. And a lot of people have that. But there's still this emotion that we have called shame. We're we're ashamed of something. It simply means we're embarrassed. And we're embarrassed by something. And here's the thing. The reason why God gives us that emotion is to remind us that we're not God, right? The whole point of this is is to to say, you know, stay humble here. Keep yourself in a position where you're still learning and and you're learning stuff about yourself. And, and, And yet, when we have those experiences, when we actually do something that we're ashamed of, that we're embarrassed about, the very person that's aware of it is the one that we don't want to talk to. And for many of us, that's how we treat God. We know we've made unwise choices. Come on, let's be honest about that. You know what they are. We all do at some level. And so we avoid praying, we quit going to church, and we disengage from our Christian friends. See it all the time. It happens. But can I tell you that there's hope? Because that's why we come to church. 
is to understand that there's hope. There's a human condition, and yes, everybody's experienced it. Every one of you have had one of those things that you would really like back, that you are not proud of, and you would just as soon not anybody else know about it, right? But let me tell you that there's some hope. Some real hope. See, after Jesus was resurrected, his disciples were understandably confused. I mean, this is the rabbi. This is the one, he, he had all the answers. They believed he was the son of God and, and he was gonna usher in this brand new era for Israel and, and it was probably gonna be a brand new kingdom and they got to be at the left and right hand side and here they were, these fishermen and they get to have high levels in, in the court and, and I, can't, I, I, I can only imagine what was going through their head. And there's a frustration level here too, I think. And what does Peter say? I'm going fishing. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. Now remember, only a couple of them were fishermen. The rest of them, they didn't have anything better to do. They weren't sure what to do. Well, yeah, let's go fishing. Sounds like a good idea. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. <laughs> so adding in, you know, insult to injury now, right? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I'm going fishing, and then you don't catch anything. Wait a minute. So did I lose my touch? I've been following Jesus for three years. This was my profession. I, I've lost it. I've lost something. I can only imagine. And then <clears throat> some guy is on the shoreline. And that guy asked the question. So did you catch anything? <laughs> I love Bill Ingvall, the, the comedian. He's out fishing with one of his buddies, and they had a bucket full of fish. And some guy says, you catch these? And Bill says, nope, just convinced them to give themselves up. <laughs> that was great. But there's this guy, and he's on the shoreline, and, and he sees them out in the boat, and they're throwing the nets out, and they're all frustrated. Yeah, did you catch anything? Grumble, grumble, grumble. And then, he's on the shore, they're in the boat, and he has the audacity to say, hey, why don't you throw your nets on the other side of the boat? Backseat driver. Come on. And for whatever reason they do, which I find really interesting, because it's just some guy at this point, giving them some advice, and so they do, and they end up having this amazing haul a fish from the guy on shore giving advice. I, it's an odd scene. It's a boatload of fish, too. And here's what happens. <clears throat> then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Cooking breakfast. Not quite biscuits and gravy, but you know, it's ancient Israel, close enough. Pro tip, always try Jesus' way and quit trying to climb up the left side of the triangle on your own, for those of you who know what that means. 
conversation ensues between Jesus and Peter over breakfast. And I want you to see just one little section of this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? More than these. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Now, in order to understand what's happening here, we need a little bit of a language lesson. Because what's happening here is far more nuanced than what I think we realize, at least as we read it in English. So, in Greek, um, it would be what we call a precise language. Um, English is very imprecise. We often will have one word when other languages will have multiple words. And I mentioned this before, like, if you're an Inuit uh, up in kind of Alaska area, then you probably have, I think it's like 300 words for snow, you know, because there's different kinds of snow. In Greek, there's actually three different words for love, and, and here they are. Um, eros, which is a romantic, uh, sort of intimate kind of love. <clears throat> Phileo, which is brotherly love or friendship. That's where we get the word Philadelphia, right? City of brotherly love. Although, my understanding is Philly's not quite like that anymore. I don't know. Um, maybe some of you do. But Phileo is brotherly love or friendship. And then you have this agape, this divine love that tends to be sacrificial. And there's an interplay of words here in in this um, discussion between Jesus and Peter that you need to understand because it it changes the the way this plays out. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I phileo you. see the difference? Do you love me with that divine sacrificial love? And he says, no, I love you with that brotherly love. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then the third time around, he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you phileo me, not agape me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. You need to understand what's happening here. There is a confession that Peter is making. Peter is saying, You know all things. You know what I did before that rooster crowed. Somebody who agapes you would not have disowned you. How on earth can I possibly say that I agape you? The best I can do is phileo. Do you see it? There is an emotion here that's in Peter's heart where he wants to say, yes, I agape you, but he knows what he did and he can't do it. And so he says, you know all things. You get this. Why are you asking me this question? This is the best that I've got for you. And what I find so interesting is that there's another side to this. Not only is this a confession to Peter, but this is Jesus meeting Peter where he's at. Peter only said, I phileo you. 
And Jesus says to him, it's okay. I still trust you. Feed my sheep. There are people who are gonna come after you that are gonna be my followers. And I want you to continue to do what I've taught you to do, and that's to feed them, to care for them, to to tend them. I want you to do that. I still trust you with that, Peter. Yes, I understand what happened between the two of us, but the bottom line here, and this is the beautiful part of this, is that Jesus' death and resurrection covers all of that. And he's telling Peter, I know where you are, and I want you to understand that I still agape you, I still trust you with this, and you're going to do great. That's why I'm telling you to do it. You may not understand this now, but this is where this is going. I believe in you, Peter. And in this moment, he disowned Jesus three times, and Jesus turns it around, and he restores him three times. I get where you are, Peter, and I can work with that too. You may not be able to agape me. That's fine. I understand that. I'm still going to agape you. And I'm going to trust you with this. So let's just start with where you're at. And Peter goes on. And what does he do? <laughs> he, he brings together the first church. He preaches the first sermon. Adds 3,000 to the number. That's what, what God does through his message. It's a beautiful picture. Feed my sheep. Take care of them. Continue to do this thing that I've called you to do. But did you notice the pivotal moment? Because there's a moment in here where things just are, you, you gotta see this. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, back in verse 15, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say that, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and he jumped into the water. By the way, he wasn't going the opposite direction. He went toward shore. Here's the thing. Peter disowned Jesus. Peter distanced himself from Jesus. Peter more or less abandoned Jesus. But here's the thing, and you've got to understand this. Peter was not afraid of Jesus. And so often in our own lives, when we're dealing with our stuff, and we got stuff, don't we? We got junk. We got our foolishness. We've got those things. And we don't want to deal with God because I think what it is, we're afraid that Jesus is going to do this, and he's going to call us bad, and he's going to make us feel lousy about ourselves. Mm -mm. Jesus doesn't need to do that because you've done fine on your own with that. Peter understood that Jesus still loved him, and the fact that he was on the shore willing to give them advice probably meant something. And so what does he do? He jumps into the water, and he heads straight towards Jesus because he wasn't afraid of him, and you don't need to be either. Whatever it is, you don't have to be afraid because he agapes you. I have a little note here <clears throat> that I wrote down where I said, God, what do you want to say here? 
because I think there's this moment that we all come to where we realize that maybe we're secretly afraid of God and, and Jesus because we've beaten ourselves up so much for something or whatever. I, I think this happens too. I think sometimes we beat ourselves up so much that if I beat myself up, then no one else can make me feel worse than I already made myself feel. Does this make sense? It's almost like we're preemptively beating ourselves up in order to protect ourselves. How messed up is that? And yet I think we do it all the time. And here's Jesus understanding exactly what happened. There's no doubt in my mind that there was a prophetic word uttered. You are going to disown me before the rooster crows. And then when it actually happens, Jesus is not surprised by this. Peter probably is. And yet Jesus knows I need to go after Peter because Peter is still pivotal. Peter is still a part of what I have. And here's, here's the thing. So are you. So are you. There are four fundamental truths that I try to remind myself of often. The first one is that God is good, that nothing is impossible with God, that he settled everything at the cross, and for whatever reason, I'm a significant part of that. I get to be a part of what he's doing. That's a truth. And the only thing that keeps me from being part of what he's doing is myself. That I choose to take myself out of the game. I choose to listen to the lies, the untruths, whatever it happens to be. I choose to listen to the echoes of the past rather than to see the vision of a future that a God who loves me is trying to create. So my, my message for you as you enter into Holy Week is that you don't have to be afraid of Jesus. I don't care what you've done or haven't done. Peter shows us the way forward in such a beautiful way. And yeah, he stumbled and bumbled his way into it. And yet, oh man, I identify with that. But I hope in my heart that I have the same level of courage as Peter to not be afraid of Jesus when I need him the most. And I hope that's for you too. God, I invite you to be um, not just present today, because I know you are, but to be active. This is kingdom stuff, because I think when we don't have a right view of ourselves in relation to you, we don't really have the right view of you. And you're good and you're loving, you agape each one of us. And until we fully embrace that, until we fully understand it, I think that we're living half a faithful life. And so Lord, as as we look to Peter, as we see his story, my prayer is that for any person who is... Seated here and thinking about that thing, that weight that they're carrying, whatever it happens to be, (laughs) that, that uncomfortable thing they're trying to avoid.
that they would be honest enough with themselves to sit down with you, to not be afraid of you and say, oh God, what do I do with this? And Lord, I pray that you would speak to them. I don't know what it is, but I trust that you do. And for those who have settled that issue a long time ago where you are, you're, you're right with Jesus on it, oh man, I'm so glad. Please be praying for your brothers and sisters who might be still wrestling with it. They need that type of encouragement and that type of support. You are truly a way maker and, and here we see it in such a, a beautiful fashion. Thank you, God. That um, you open that up for us, and we don't have to be afraid of you. Don't have to be afraid, but we can run to you. And yeah, we may have to deal with some stuff. We may have to deal with the discomfort, but you still love us. And maybe that's what we need just to get us through. Holy Spirit, I invite you to come. Do it only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen.